where there is a life aligned worldview, a worldview that says it's okay to engage with complexity. It's necessary. Wherever there is life, it is worthy of our reverence. There's in enough complexity that it's beyond our ability to comprehend or to control to, to positive effect. We devalue conversation as if it's all talk and no action. And this is really making the case for the, the transformative power of thoughtful, even playful and, and appreciative life-aligned conversations. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Michelle Holliday. Michelle is a consultant, facilitator, author, and researcher. Her work centers around thrivability, which she defines as a set of perspectives and practices based on a view of organizations and communities as dynamic, self-organizing living systems. Her work involves bringing people together and helping them discover ways they can feel more alive, connect more meaningfully with each other, and serve life more powerfully and effectively through their collective action. She's the author of the book, The Age of Thrivability, Vital Perspectives and Practices for a Better World. And I'm really excited to speak with Michelle. And as the Coconut Thinking Podcast evolves, changes, shifts, and emerges, we're going to focus more and more on regenerative practitioners. We're still going to keep a foothold in learning, but perhaps going beyond school, which is something we've always talked about. Perhaps looking at regeneration as a means to recognize that we are dynamic processes, and that learning is a dynamic process, and it goes beyond the four walls of a school. So to our teachers out there, we don't want to lose you by any stretch of the imagination, but we are bringing in different entry points. And for those who aren't in education, we can hopefully serve as bridge builders between your work and schools as well. So in the meantime, check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com as well as IntrepidEd, www.intrepidednews.com. And in the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Michelle. Hi, Michelle. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, really looking forward to some of your ideas, your views uh, on thriving, on connections, on, on really what we can do to bring about worlds that we imagine and that create a healthier sense of who we are. And, and we, I mean the greater sense of we. I'll start off with the question that we ask all our guests uh, to start with, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you, Benjamin. Thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm really thrilled to be in this conversation with you. I think it's it's such an important one, and I, I love the perspective that you are bringing. So let's see where we go in, in bringing ours, uh, our views and our experiences together. Uh, maybe I'll start with who am I? Already, that feels like a big question, and then um, we can get to what's the story I want to tell. But um, who am I is, is partly like you, a, a global citizen, maybe not quite to the extent that you are, but I've lived in 19 cities around the world, and uh, especially in my uh, school years, that meant that I was always the new kid in school and always looking in from the outside. And, and I think this is where I developed my interest in my sort of tendency to notice patterns in how people do things. I was always curious, why do, why do things make sense that way here, which is different from the last place that I lived. So part of who I am is a pattern seeker, you know, and um, 
always in search of insights and and learning. Uh, that has turned into um, thinking of myself as a facilitator, a consultant, an author, and a researcher. Those are sort of the descriptors that I use in my official biography. And anybody who has worked with me will tell you, most of all, I'm a researcher, you know, which is part of why I love this conversation that I'm, I'm so curious, I'm so driven by what I can learn from any context, any encounter, and then what I can share of what I've learned. So I'm, I'm drawn to creating frameworks and models and, um, and offering articles and a book. I've written a book about um, thriveability, which we'll talk about. Um, and the thing that I'm most curious about is uh, how did we get so misaligned in engaging with life and its ability to thrive? And how could we get back or how could we move forward into more alignment with life? This has been the focus of my, my work and my life for the past 25 years. Uh, someone along the way started calling me a, a thrivability maven. So that's part of who I am. And, and I sort of liked that title. Uh, the word maven just means expert if you look in the dictionary, but I think there's something softer than expert in it that seems to hold the curiosity and the engagement with the world that that I hold in, uh, in how I show up and think of myself. And, and maybe the last thing I would share is I'm a host. I'm part of a global community of practice called The Art of Hosting. And, and the full name is something like The Art of um, Hosting and Harvesting Conversations About Things That Matter and That Lead to Lasting Change, which is a big mouthful. But uh, it's essentially a, a community of practice around methods of facilitation, facilitating groups. But the, the underlying philosophy is that what we are hosting, what we're facilitating is what wants to come to life within this group. And the process is really one of learning. Whatever we're doing, it's discerning. What is ours to do? What is it that wants to come to life through us? And how can we co-discover and, and co-create our way into that? So really learning is essential to who I am and, and to all of my work in all sectors. I do some work in education, but I also work in tourism and um, agriculture and life sciences and, and everywhere. And, and I want first to help people understand the story that we're living within and, and you point to this, I know, in your work, but we have this dominant guiding worldview and narrative that tells us everything in the world operates like a machine, right? Made up of separate parts. And it tells us that we are separate from each other and separate from nature, separate from our organizations, even within uh, educational institutes and institutions. It tells us that those uh, places of learning are separate from the rest of society, that learning is separate from doing so. Uh, this is a story that tells us we exist to compete and consume and that productivity and profitability are the only things that matter. And it's it's such an all-pervasive story that we don't even recognize it's just a story and that other stories are available. And, and that that mechanistic story is the root cause of every major problem we face in the world. So the story I want to tell is there is another story available. It's emerging in, in every sector in society, everywhere we look, it's at the edges coming into view. In, in many ways, it's an ancient story and an indigenous story, but it's also 
um, coming about in new ways. And, and this is a story that says we're not separate. We're not machines. We are living beings within a, a living ecology, embedded and, and integral within an, a living ecology. And um, I, I have a particular way of inviting people into that story. I work with four fertile conditions that we find in every thriving living system, including organizations, including places of learning, uh, including communities. So I, I invite people to recognize that we can work with life's ability to thrive. We can participate in life's thriveability wherever we find it for ourselves, for our organizations and communities as dynamic living ecosystems for the biosphere. I love your term, the biocollective. All of that together is, is the biocollective. And in recognizing that opportunity, that ability, that necessity for us to participate with life's natural ability to thrive, our role shifts from being mechanics and engineers in that mechanistic story to being gardeners and stewards. Stewards who are... Um, tending to those fertile conditions and sensing and responding what's needed in an ongoing individual and collective practice of learning. It's, it really comes back to, to learning in, in every case. So that's, that's essentially the story that I want to tell and invite people into. And there's going to be a lot for us to unpack here. And, and mm -hmm. you know, I, I keep thinking about, about this ball of yarn, these threads that we can pull, and which one do we pull, and how does it, how does it unravel, um, and, right. and what does it lead us to? Before we get to that, I'll ask you, how do you define learning? Learning is living, and living is learning. Learning is how we engage in the world and, and how we become ever more aware of and, and capable of responding to the world. So um, it's everything. <laughs> Learning is, is at the heart of, of thriving. If we hope to enable life to thrive, then we are committed to a process of, of learning. So it, it might be a synonym for that practice of stewardship, stewarding the life in ourselves and in the world around us. Now, you mentioned that learning is living. So I wonder if this opens up spaces. And, and actually, if, you know, following biology and so forth, we understand that, that non-human animals learn clearly, but, but also plants learn. And, and, and plants respond and, and, and they find ways of um, coming about in, in different ways based on their own experiences. And, and, and it's a, it's a cutting-edge field. It's a new field. But, but there is evidence about this. I love this idea that you have about seeing what emerges, seeing what happens. In schools, in, in, in other places of learning, in, in corporate environments where they, where they bring people through um, some kind of professional development, there's always a plan. There's always this idea, as you mentioned, this mechanistic of we're going to get you through this unit, this experience, this module, this whatever it might be in order to achieve this goal. But what you're describing here is, is a different way of, of approaching the world. It's, it's about seeing what might happen. How do you see this as, as being a different way of approaching and responding to the world? Mm -hmm. it, I, I think the core difference is in recognizing system level learning also, that learning is not only an individual activity and an isolated activity, that we learn within systems, that systems learn 
through us, that, that learning is something relational and contextual and complex and emergent. So what we really need is to cultivate a learning ecology wherever we are to create the conditions for learning to emerge, for new understanding and insight to emerge. And, and it's then available to each of us, but, but also to others in the system and, and to the system itself. It, it grows in its capacity to sense and respond to uh, its inner and outer context. Does that make sense? <laughs> It does, and and I think that this this word emerge is critical here because emerge we're looking at it from different points of view. Rather than trying to get to this objective, this goal, this plan on the other side, and we're going to get people through there until they get to this standard, this criterion, this whatever, we're looking at it from from the reverse, which is let's see what might unfold. Now, now that could be quite scary for a lot of folks. It could be quite scary because emergence leads to lack of control. It leads to, well, I don't know what might happen. Uh, at its most extreme level, it might lead to non-compliance and maybe even revolutionary activity, but but it might. So so how how do we navigate this this internal and societal fear of what might emerge? Mm -hmm. That's that is the core question right there. How do we navigate that that um, need to engage with complexity? And, and that's another way of talking about the need to engage with emergence. So there's the the conventional wisdom that where there's a will, there's a way, you know, and it's a little bit depressing because we haven't found a way to transform education the way we need to. We haven't found a way to deal with the, the shortcomings that are increasingly evident in our school system. So maybe there just isn't enough will, right? And, and we're stuck. So an, an educational approach would say, we just need to teach people, need to give them knowledge and educate them about the problems. And then there will be the will and there will be the way, but that's not working either. I think we're bombarded with information, knowledge and education about problems. So my belief and experience is that the more complete version of that saying is where there is a life aligned worldview, a worldview that says it's okay to engage with complexity. It's necessary. And um, we can have trust in life. So first we have this life aligned worldview and we have a community within which we can live and learn our way into that worldview together. Then there will be the will and there will be the way, but we can't shortcut both of those. So. The how that you're asking, how do we get past this impasse where people are too scared to give up control and, and compliance? We, we have to really dive deeply into this emerging story and create spaces where we can learn together how to navigate. There are, there are ways, there are practices that help us navigate. The, they have to come together with the worldview or the, the practices kind of um, don't stick, don't deliver all of the insight and learning that they could. And I love this idea about life-aligned worldview. And, and I go back to, again, trees or planting or whatever it might be, that we plant something, uh, we create the conditions for 
that plant uh, to, to grow or, or, or maybe nature creates the conditions. Why, why am I being so anthropocentric saying that we plant, like the, the wind plants the seeds and, and, and there are conditions there that some of the seeds will grow, some won't, and that's okay. I mean, that's, you know, we, we, we can't be, want everything to, 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 to happen, but it grows within a certain conditions. It has to have a certain uh, amount of water, a certain amount of soils, you know, but it also has to have other life forms to help it grow. Trees cannot survive or certainly cannot thrive without the, the fungal networks. Um, and, and also, we don't know what the trees are going to look like when the seeds go. It, it, we, we just don't know where the branches will grow and, and, and it will respond to its context. So really, it, it's, it's fascinating how this is about the, the life alignment is, is how things have been going on for however long life's been around. It, it, it just happens and we don't know what it will look like. So it's not so incredibly contrary to nature, to, to, to how we are. We just need to let things respond. Exactly. A, a simple activity I like to offer to groups is to reflect on where you already practice stewardship. And, and, and let me say my definition of stewardship, my working definition is that it's the combination of reverence and responsibility. So whenever there is a living system, could be a child, could be a classroom full of children or a whole school or a tree. Wherever there is life, it is worthy of our reverence. There is en enough complexity that it's beyond our ability to comprehend or to control to, to positive effect. There's, a, there's more potential than we can know. So it's worthy of our respect, our deep, profound respect and our wonder and awe. So there's, there's reverence. And kind of paradoxically, even though it's beyond our ability to control and predict and, and comprehend fully, we feel called to care, to respond to its needs, to be responsible. So when reverence and responsibility come together, that's the call to this practice of stewardship. And we all engage in that practice all the time. If you've ever had a child or a plant, I asked this to a group once, uh, where do you already have this practice of caring for something or someone that has a life of its own, and, you know, and, and, and what is that like for you? And, and one person shared that uh, she cares for a sourdough starter <laughs> and it, they started taking care of it during the pandemic. And it, it's just there looking out at them from the refrigerator every time they open it, you know, and it's, it's more of a presence in their lives than they anticipated. So we all have that experience and we can all reflect on what it's like and it is sometimes uncomfortable it's hard to raise a child or to try to grow a plant and not know what do you need <laughs> i've got plants all around me right now and some of them are drooping and i don't know why so <laughs> we we all have that and and that is some comfort to know it's human it, it's part of what it means to be alive to be in that kind of necessarily responsive relationship. And I love this idea of responsibility. And the word also that came about here is, is a reciprocity. Reciprocity because of the relationship that we have with the plants, the relationship that we have in terms of the way that we live together. And, and that goes back to well, really a lot of a lot of different different cultures and and, and philosophies and so forth, but but that reciprocity is also so important because then it allows us to release a little bit of control, doesn't it? 
That's it. I love that you're bringing that up. And it's why I talk about cultivating a learning ecology because we are changed in the process as well. It's not just the plant that is learning. We necessarily are learning as well. And so this system that we form together is learning and evolving and ideally growing in its capacity. Yeah. Let's talk about this idea of, of thrivability. And I keep thinking of this, I, I think of responsibility, you know, and, and, and putting a, a dash between response and ability. And, and, I, and I'm brought to think the same thing about thrivability, our ability to thrive and, and, and playing with those words. What is your concept? What is your work around the notion of thrivability? What, what does thriving mean? Much like learning, we could talk about it, but what does it, it what, what might it mean? And again, we don't want to get into definitions because they're definite, but what might be that space? So more than thriving, I talk about thrivability because thriving often is understood to be a destination and a utopia and, and sort of perfect conditions. And in the early days, when I, when I started out talking about living systems, thinking and, and all of this, people would say, there are people starving and you want me to talk about thriving, you know, or, or I haven't even reached sustainability yet. How can I imagine thriving? But we can start right now to cultivate the conditions for life to be more able to thrive. That can be our ongoing practice. We can't control life. We can't force it to thrive. As you said, with the tree, it, it, it has more going on than we can comprehend, but we can tend to the conditions for it to be more able to thrive. So that's, that's the emphasis for me. And, and maybe the last thing I'll say is there's, there's something about the, the generative capacity that emerges when a system is more able to thrive, the, the regenerative capacity, uh, which is another word for healing, is it able to heal itself and, and, and to create new possibilities? Is it ever more um, integrated in its surrounding context? Is it ever more responsive? So those are some of the things that we can pay attention to as we're discerning whether we're serving the thrivability of, of ourselves or of the systems that we're part of. And you bring up again this, this word of spaces and opening up spaces, which is, uh, you know, a space clearly is, is not linear in the sense that a space is, is three-dimensional, four-dimensional, really. Um, linearity is this process of going from point A to point B. And, and of course, I'm simplifying here, but I think we understand what, what we're talking about. And yet we don't often create spaces because as we talked about earlier, there's this idea of control of what might happen. And in a world in which we're trying to get kids ready for the workforce in world in which we're trying to uh, get people to a certain point, there's, there's, this, uh, there's this natural, as you mentioned, mechanistic story of this happens and this happens and this happens, which is different from opening up spaces and allowing really the diversity of what might grow happen. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's it. I worked with a, a, a coalition of nature museums years ago, and uh, part of the process of, of helping them imagine themselves as a, a living and learning ecology together involved a, a shift in, in the name 
they, they were initially called the Montreal Nature Museums. And they came to call themselves together um, Espace pour la vie, which means a space for life. And they, they kept their four individual identities, but, but they together became the space for life. And I love this phrase because it's such a nice translation of the concept of thriveability, which doesn't translate very well into French. But I, I can explain that it's about seeing your organization, your project, a conversation as a space for life, as a space in which we can tend to the fertile conditions for life to thrive. And I worked with a, a language school for a while, and the, the founder spent a lot of time in Japan. And I, I think it was that influence that led him never to talk about the school or the business, but always the space. What does this space need? What will enable this space to thrive? And it, it really meant that four-dimensional concept of, of everything that's alive <laughs> and everyone who enters the space, the potential that we form individually and also together. And I wonder if this opens up the question of thriving and flourishing. And I don't want to say this opposite. I don't want to create tension between the two or anything like that. But but is there a, a nuance between the two terms? Is there one that potentially you prefer? I mean, if, oh, clearly it's going to be thrivability, or at least I would assume <laughs> so. But but, but 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 what is what is your sense about the different mindsets or the different approaches that flourishing and thriving bring about in terms of uh, well, just that terms? Yeah, I actually don't distinguish between them. It's just that flourishability is a little bit harder to say. <laughs> but I, I would use thriving and flourishing interchangeably. There, there may be nuance that other people would point to, but, uh, but I like them both. I also like regeneration. Regenerativity is is a little bit of a mouthful as well. And I think that regeneration is a capability of thriving living systems. So I, I, I do make a bit of a distinction there, but. Um, I, I welcome all the terms. Let's just figure out a way to ground ourselves in in life one way or another. Do you, do you have a, a distinction between the two? Well, no, that's a good question. And I think about it often. And, and you know, I've got some very uh, close colleagues who um, work with the term flourishing. And, 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 and I have historically, I mean, historically, you know, however long that is, uh, worked with, with thriving. And, and I just wonder if the idea of flourishing is more individual and thriving is more ecosystemic. And that might be something in my head that I'm creating in, in this false construct, because at the end of the day, it's just my, my sense of what that might mean. And I just keep going back to this idea of the ecosystem being a relational piece, whereas flourishing might be one that does well, a healthy individual part. And, and, and this idea of individual, of course, doesn't really exist in itself, but, but I just wonder if thriving is more an emphasis on, on the relational. Again, I could be inventing this. I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. As I think about it, the references to flourishing are generally quite individual. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. I I would accept them both. 
And, and that's again fair enough. And I and I don't want to do anything against uh, the, the 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 wonderful people who talk about flourishing because even that in itself is is, is wonderful work. I I guess my emphasis is just to make sure that. We we think about the relationality of it, and that it's mm-hmm. not just the, it's not just that as individuals we can't flourish or thrive without other people doing that. It's it's more the the the, the ecosystem again of the, this idea that that together there's a relationality that that matters more. What's in between matters more than the sense of of individualism, which again is part of that mechanistic story that that we tell ourselves. That's it. Those universal design principles that I mentioned earlier. It's just four things, that, and it is that there are diverse parts in any thriving living system. Those parts are supported and connected in relationship, and, and we can tend to that condition. We, we need to tend to the, the relationality between parts and, and with context. And the parts come together in relationship in a way that enables the emergence of a new whole. So we tend to that also. What is it? that we're called to become together and what what's needed at the level of the whole of us. And then the fourth thing is that there's life that animates all of it. And, and that's where the reverence and responsibility come in, that we can't know and control everything, but we can invite inspiration, we can discern, we can sense and, and support life's self-organization and self-integration. At, at the level of parts and whole through relationship. I think that kind of is, is one response to your uh, search for clear relationality and system, system level kind of work as well. And again, I, I, I want to stress that it's not about getting caught up with the words themselves. It's more the sense and the feeling of that. And that kind of brings me back to what you had mentioned earlier about trying to fill our heads with knowledge and ideas and data and so forth. And 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 when you when you mentioned that earlier, I keep thinking about the climate crisis. And I, I'm more and more uncomfortable with the idea of climate breakdown, climate crisis, because it's well more than that. It's it's an ecological breakdown because when we talk about climate crisis, we kind of forget the biodiversity loss. We kind of forget all of the the, the living uh, beings, becomings that, that that are affected by by, uh, by by where we are. So let me let me let me just unwrap this briefly. I, I think we we live in a world where if we could continue to grow and expand and consume and yet keep temperatures under 1.5, everything would be fine. We would be happy with that. That's the idea of sustainability. Let's sustain this lifestyle. If we were to encroach on uh, the the habitats of, of 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 non-human animals and plants, and yet keep the temperature under one point five, we're all good. So talking about climate crisis kind of lets us forget about the biodiversity loss. And so I I'm brought back to this idea that that you had about about our knowledge because I wonder. Um, how much we have to appeal to the sense of feeling and how we forget what feeling is. And the only way to really bring about a different futures is by tapping into that feeling. But we live, unfortunately, in a mechanistic world where, you know, we can't have emotions, we can't show emotions, we can't, you know, we have to distinguish between facts and emotions and and, and all these things. And, and I just wanted to get a little bit your sense of, of what that might mean and and how, again, we can navigate through those complexities. Mm-hmm. Such a good question. So I've got a uh, a collection of practices for 
stewardship or being in that, in that practice of stewardship, there are different kind of doorways in there's, um, meditation, there's, um, creative practice being in, in some creative activity. There is, um, this kind of conversation, we can discover new things. Probably the most powerful doorway in is spending time in nature. And uh, I'm part of, I'm a founder of a community of practice called OD for Life, OD for organizational development, people who support organizations in developing. Um, and we're, trying to shift that field of practice to be more in alignment with life. Um, I just wrote an article for an academic journal about this movement uh, and what we're learning together. And it's peer reviewed. So the first feedback I got was, so I'm assuming that you mean when you say for life that you mean nature. So how exactly do you do that? Which is so revealing, so interesting because it's not only about nature, right? It's about life. But part of what we're exploring and, and discovering as if it's not obvious is that when we spend time in nature, it's this powerful intervention. When we do it thoughtfully, when we, we go with a reflective mindset and, and then we can be more open to integrating all of this knowledge and, and to discovering new possibilities, new ways of being. And, and we know that, but there's happily more and more research to back that up. And, and we're finding ways to integrate it into our practice with organizations. And how do you do that in an urban setting? How do you do that in a place where people walk in, walk out, uh, and they are stuck within walls? There, there are some small kind of uh, initial ways of doing that. I, I have I have a little house on a lake and beavers come and take down the saplings and leave behind sticks that have little bite marks on them. And I use that as a talking piece. So it's, there's something about holding a piece of wood and feeling the, the ridges where those teeth made marks. There can be something like that. Um, but ideally, we go for a walk, <laughs> we do something outside. And if we can't, then we move our bodies. I, I always integrate movement and, and our bodies are also nature. So we can, as part of our expanded ways of knowing and, and opening to new possibilities, we can tap into the feelings in our bodies and, and, and play is another way. So I Another community of practice that I, I'm part of is um, the Applied Improvisation Network. Play is often considered the opposite of work, but I find that it's the highest form of work. And it's how we learn best, how we collaborate best, how we discover new ideas best. So the, these are many different ways. If we can't go out into the forest, then there are other doorways in. But this brings up a really, really important point, and I think that it's uh, such, such, such an important piece to think about because, or to feel as well, is this idea of I can't connect with nature because I live in a city and I must go out. And that's wonderful if we can be in that space. But ultimately, as you mentioned, if we are nature, 
then really it's about communing with ourselves and an other life form around us, which could be our colleagues that we play with, who we play with. And so there shouldn't be a barrier of, I can't connect with nature because there are no forests around me. Because if we are nature, then it's about connecting with ourselves and others. And, and I don't mean ourselves and others in terms of one and then the other. I mean ourselves and others at the same time because, we, because of the relationality. Right, right, exactly. And this is where that art of hosting practice comes in to, to support and guide people in all of that, all of those experiences and discoveries and learning ultimately learning. What is on your horizons? What are some of the things that, that you're working towards? You're part of many communities of practice, you wrote a book, you, you're, you're, doing, you're doing so much work in terms of, of uh, the, the possibilities that you have. What, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to in the medium, long, short term? I've just hired someone to help me develop that next phase where I'll focus more on equipping um, it's sort of, we would say train the trainer. That's not nearly the right phrase, but shorthand is that. So equipping other facilitators, guides, hosts to support organizations. So equipping them with those models and frameworks that I love to create and, and the patterns, those universal design principles, um, we find in all living systems and, and a process for guiding people in uh, embracing that more life-aligned worldview and becoming a learning ecology together to, to learn their way into it. So that's that's what's on my horizon, really. And I'm, I'm very excited about it. And so what might that look like in terms of how, how will that spread out and how are those communities going to come together? If you could imagine what what that might feel like later on down the road? Yeah, it's the big question. It's why I've just hired so <laughs> So I don't have a full answer, but the the biggest thing for me is it looks like excited learning. I, I have some toys and I really feel like I've got a ball. Do you have a racket? You know, <laughs> what do you know? What, what have you discovered and what could we discover together? But uh, I, I, I do want to create something of, a, a dedicated practice ground where I, I can bring my ball <laughs> and, and we learn around um, that in, in a co-creative way. So that's the thing that I'm, I'm most excited about, being in conversations like these where we can share stories of what we're noticing and evolve the practice and the models and the frameworks mm, together. I love that. Uh, one last question. And this is because we're trying to build our own uh, library. What book are you reading right now? Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to choose because I've got maybe four going, four or five. Which one is? There's a book by some colleagues in the Netherlands, uh, and it's called Appreciative Inquiry as a Daily Leadership Practice. And the subtitle is Realizing Change One Conversation at a Time. And I'm really loving it. Um, loving it for its focus on the power of, of conversations as a space for life and as a space for learning. And it's so countercultural because we devalue conversation as if it's all talk and no action. And this is really making the case for the, the transformative power of, of thoughtful 
even playful and, and appreciative life aligned conversations. And this is, this is, uh, you know, the world connects us in different ways. And, and with OD for life, you're working as well with Andres Roberts from bioleadership. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so he recommended this book to me, which is appreciative inquiry handbook as well. So I wonder, so those, those connections are there about just being in that general space of, of what that That's might mean. It. So, so very exciting. Now tell us a little bit about appreciative inquiry. What, what might that be for, for folks who, uh, who aren't quite aware? Sure. It's a, a fully life aligned, uh, practice. It's emerged in the late 1980s and now is a global movement. And it is uh, focused around what is alive for any group, what what brings more life to the group and and let's grow more of that. Let's pay more attention to that. Uh, And that's in contrast to focusing on what is wrong and what is lacking. And it's not that those are are never considered and are not welcome, but it's a recognition of the energy that's generated and the more generative and creative ideas, the, the more relationship that's cultivated when we ground ourselves in what's good, what's alive, and what we want to grow more of. That's kind of it in an essence. And there, there are methods within it, but there's also um, a, a, just a... A core philosophy as well. Which is tremendous, this idea of abundance rather than scarcity, this idea of building out strength and what positive good things happen when we do this rather than let's try to fix these holes that we, you know, we might not do. Exactly. Exactly. Michelle, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I really appreciate the insights and and, and the energy that that you bring, not just to the conversation, but also to the possibilities that, that, that might and I'll, I'll use the word uh, cheekily that might emerge just from this, these different ways of approaching these different perspectives, these different starting points that we have where we don't know necessarily where we might be going, and that's okay. Um, so, so thank you so much. Uh, do, you, do you have anything else? Any this kind of the et cetera section, things that are on your mind? I don't think so. I'm just uh, happy that you're asking these questions and gathering uh, a body of, of understanding uh, it's it's generous and important. So thank you. And thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. And of course, all the wonderful authors and thinkers and doers on Intrepid Ed, www.intrepidednews.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. Leave uh, five stars, subscribe, and speak to you next week. Bye-bye.